Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. The goal of social justice today is to ensure that all individuals can participate and mutually shape their societies and organizations so that they may thrive. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our fourth season, we're exploring the relationship between HRD and trends in society and organizations, with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. Today, our focus is the relationship between HRD social justice and human rights. And my guests are Aiko Bethea of Rare Coaching and Consulting, Dr. Cynthia Sims of the University of Georgia, and Dr. Mary Alfred of Texas A&M University, all of whom join me for a conversation recorded in May of 2023. Our episode today is structured into two sections. In the first, we look at what we mean by the terms social justice and human rights, and how they impact organizations and the workforce. Then, in the second, we explore the implications for HRD practice, research, and education. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode, the three guests, and also the episode sponsors by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash justice. Talking of sponsorship, the Human Resource Development Masterclass is only made possible Thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series and so enable us to release them free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. With a vision of transforming lives through the core mission of teaching, research and outreach, the Educational Human Resource Development Program is addressing some of human resource development's most urgent challenges today, including talent and leadership development, career development and organizational development, and through inclusive excellence at local, national and international contexts. The program is also a leader in graduating scholar practitioners conducting research that advances theory and informs both policy and practice, ultimately improving the quality of life for countless individuals across multiple disciplines. The Educational Human Resource Development Program is focused on preparing the leaders of tomorrow and setting the standards for excellence. You can learn more about the program by visiting eahr.tamu.edu. Right, let's dive into the episode. 
So welcome to our episode on social justice, human rights, and implications for HRD. And let's start by meeting today's three guests. And first, I'd like to welcome Aiko Bethea, a leader, builder, and connector who has successfully navigated leadership roles in government, philanthropic, nonprofit, and private sectors. The founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, ICO guides leaders and organizations, including Fortune 100 companies and global nonprofit organizations, to remove barriers to inclusion. She's been recognized by Forbes as one of the top seven anti-racism educators for companies and is a senior equity consultant for the Brené Brown Education and Research Group. So welcome, ICO. Thank you. Glad to be here. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Cynthia Sims. Associate Professor of the Mary Frances Early College of Education and the Department of Lifelong Education, Administration and Policy at the University of Georgia. Cynthia's research focuses on the ways gender and diversity influences the enactment of leadership in the workplace. Prior to joining the University of Georgia, Cynthia was the Director of Clemson University Faculty Advancement Office and a faculty member in Clemson's Master of Human Resource Development program. Prior to her academic career, she was employed with the U.S. Fortune 100 company, serving as the Director of Staff Operations, Director of Learning and Performance Improvement, and the Director of Human Resources. Welcome, Cynthia. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. My third guest for the episode is Dr. Mary Alfred. Professor Emerita at Texas A&M University. Mary's research interests include international adult education, learning and development among women of the African diaspora, socio-cultural contexts of adult learning, and social welfare and economic disparities among low-income and low-literate adults. Mary's work has been recognized through multiple awards, including the Commission of Professors of Adult Education Lifetime Career Achievement Award, and she was inducted into the International Adult and Continuing Education Hall of Fame in 2016. So welcome, Mary. It's great to be here. Thank you. So over the next hour, we're going to be talking about social justice and human rights and implications for organizations and individuals and then implications for human resource development. But before diving into the details, I, I think it'd be helpful to start our conversation off by exploring what is meant by the term social justice and how the three of you have worked on the topic in through your own research, writing and practice. So, Cynthia, I was wondering if you'd be willing to get the ball rolling for us and talk a bit about your understanding of the term social justice and how you've worked on it. I'd be happy to. As you mentioned, I'm a leadership scholar who studies women in general and Black women in particular. So as such, my research naturally falls into a social justice paradigm. So what is social justice? Social justice has a long history. The goal of social justice today is to ensure that all individuals can participate and mutually shape their societies and organizations so that they may thrive. In practice, this means that everyone is seen, know that they belong, and feel that they are valued. Social justice is needed because, as Dr. King so eloquently put it, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Uh, contemporary events 
on a daily basis in the U.S. and the world continually bring our attention to the injustices that are perpetuated in society, from indiscriminate killing of people of color, children and adults being threatened by their classmates or their neighbors, lack of access to health care and housing, not to mention the uneven quality of education, pay inequities, career, lack of career mobility. These are all examples of social justice issues. So for me, in my example, when I research entrepreneurial women, these trailblazers sought to bring about their own social justice by starting businesses to meet their needs, to make sure that they would be paid based on their talents and efforts and just remove the gender barriers that they had experienced in the workplace. So these are all different examples of some of the research that I've done from the Gender Equity Leadership Program to the new office that I'm running that looks at how to promote equity, faculty success, and career progression. Thus, really, what I'm trying to do is to make visible how women leaders strive to bring social justice to themselves, their organizations, and the communities they serve. So that's a little bit about my social justice focus. Maybe I go to come to you next. Um, how, how does that relate to how you view social justice and the, the work that you've done on it? Yeah, first, I appreciate uh, Cynthia's thorough response uh, just about defining social justice and how it comes into play with the work that we do, which we're a leadership development firm, part of it is looking at the systems that people are navigating all the time in terms of an organizational development. And one is that there's a default way that organizations or corporate America operates as is. And the ability to be able to identify that and name it and understand the detrimental impacts it has on its workers, its employee, and actually even consumers is important in order to obtain social justice because oftentimes we have to disrupt those default ways of being even when you think about capitalism the idea is to get as much as you can out of a worker in terms of labor it's not innate that we're trying to actually make sure the experience is equitable and even humane so that's part of the work that we do when we're working within organizations is to introduce them one to the idea that they're not it's not necessarily the case that these things are mutually exclusive, making profit and also honoring people's uh, human rights and also the social justice issues that we want to elevate. The other part is creating space for the employees or their workers, even if they're in the seat of leaders, to understand that they have permission to actually have access to these things, like being able to have boundaries around how they show up at work, who they are, and what they're willing to give to their workplace as well. Oftentimes, the employee themselves don't recognize that in order to be successful, they can still give themselves permission to ask for and sometimes demand the things that they need. So we work, one, on the individual level for us to have a mindset that is empowering and also for us to have a, a spaces or workplaces that name where there are inequities or where things are not working in favor of recognizing social justice or how to be equitable in the workplace. So that's quite a bit of the work that we do, everything from training to providing executive coaching so that people or leaders and employees have space to start exploring what is it that they need in order to work in a just workplace. 
and then even to start working on how to ask for that, demand that, or get it from uh, different workplaces or spaces. Mary, how how have you viewed social justice and, and how have you worked on it in your career? Well, um, to me, I'm ditto to what my other two colleagues have, have said, but again, to me, social justice is fair and equitable treatment and distribution of resources um, regardless of one's social or cultural identities. So that, that's how I package this idea of, so, of social justice. And I, I look at social justice based on three pillars, equal rights, equal opportunity, equal treatment. And that frames some of the work that I, that frames some of the work that I do. That, that's that's the, the umbrella I take when I go into, into my research. And much of the work I have done have looked at the experiences of marginalized populations in education and or in the workplace. For example, my first foray as a student, I was, a, I was an African-American faculty at a community college. And I wanted to, with plans of going into the, into the university, I wanted to know what are the experiences of black faculty at the university because the research said that they were not doing well, they were being marginalized, they were not well received. So what am I getting into? So I, I, that was my first foray into research on black women in higher education, looking at the tenure process, the structural and personal um, dimensions of one's career pathways into academia through tenure. Then I looked at, again, coming from pop, a marginalized population, Poverty was part of my, my history um, of working class people from the Caribbean Isle of St. Lucia. I researched how poverty is viewed and experienced by women with children undergoing welfare reform legislation. So that was another major piece of, of my work, looking at women and how they were impacted by that. And I also looked at the, the whole notion of women and STEM. Women of color in STEM fields. How are the experiences, the field as women of color? Another piece of my work is now looking into international adult education, looking at the systemic development goals and how we as adult educators are helping to advance those goals of um, human rights, social justice, environmental justice. So I have a book on, on the whole issue of advancing the UN development goals. So that's in a nutshell of some of the work I have done and also um, chairing and being executive director of a, a literacy center where we provide training for adult educators who are working with low literate adults in literacy education and general education, etc. So again, I frame my work as a basic human rights agenda. That frames the, the work that I do. I wonder if that takes us into into exploring that term human rights a, a little. I think one of the things that might be helpful for listeners is to dig a little into the terms social justice and human rights before we start exploring a bit about implications for organizations and individuals. So, Mary, seeing as you just mentioned human rights, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk us through how you see the relationship between social justice and human rights and, and how that relationship kind of influences your thinking on social justice. 
First of all, I wanted to give just a brief context, historical context of human rights. When human rights, the declaration was established back in 1948, when President Roosevelt charged a committee to come up with a set of conditions by how we treat others individually and nationally and internationally. And therefore, the human rights agenda was commissioned in 1948 with several rights that are endemic to the world and to individuals. And so when we look at human rights, it has a long history. But what was not given much attention was the high idea of social and cultural rights. Political rights, civil rights were first and foremost, these received much attention. But social rights at a micro individual level was not given much attention. So today we see much attention is given to those cultural and social rights um, of individuals. And so therefore it takes me back to what is human rights and what is social justice? The human rights agenda frames how we look at the treatment and conditions upon which we interact and we make things available, goods and services available to others on an equal level. And that brings us back, that brings us back to human rights and social justice. What is just? I don't, we cannot have social justice without having a human rights agenda. And if we look at human rights and what I said, the three pillars of human rights, we said just, I said just now, the three pillars are equal rights, equal opportunity, and equal treatment. To accomplish that, we must be fair and just. We must have an agenda. No matter where the system is, whether it's at the workplace, in education, in law, we must have an agenda that is fair and just so that we can accomplish human rights and therefore to minimize discrimination despite the system of work or education or law or housing or healthcare. What I would say about social justice is that social justice isn't just about equality and every human having certain rights. Social justice also brings in the idea of equity and recognizing that there are certain conditions, whether they be in identity or historical um, behaviors or laws, uh, that society has enabled that makes or creates certain barriers for some of us and hinders us from actually exercising or having access to human rights. So social justice goes beyond the idea of thinking about equality of everybody, every human having a right to something. Social justice also names and recognizes history, societal behaviors, as well as other barriers that are in place because of beliefs and behaviors we've taken on and created systems around them. So I do want to add that nuance about social justice, because social justice brings in society's behaviors in the past historically, and then how we've built systems to actually reinforce inequity. So that's one nuance I would bring in about maybe human rights and social justice. That then starts making me think a bit about the role of organizations in all of this, because when you talk about societies, behaviors and, and systems within society to to kind of reinforce those, because organizations are part of society. Um, so I suppose when you look then at organizations, like how do you see them being impacted by social justice as a whole and then potentially, I guess, around the way that social justice has been framed. 
So I would say that the relationship is not necessarily that organizations are creating inequities, but they may be perpetuating them because they're a part of the output of society, of a lot of other beliefs and systems that exist. So the wonderful thing is, is that uh, especially as of late, is we know based on data, empirical data and studies, some of this is by the work of, I just want to give them credit, is Megan Wrights and John Higgins, where they've done work about recognizing that, at least within the last two years, that the number of employees and people who self-identify as activists has never been as high as it is now. And in terms of recognizing, it was never the case that people would come into a workplace and all of a sudden you shed your identities and everybody's equal. But there was never the throughway of space now that there is where there is an understanding and more of an acceptance that we don't come into the workplace in a vacuum, that people are actually bringing in their lived experiences and the way that society has treated them or engaged with them, we're bringing that into the workplace. And maybe one of the instances that was more of a global pivotal turning point for folks was the murder of George Floyd. And that was a time when you saw a lot of organizations inviting and asking for conversations about race, particularly specifically blackness and anti-blackness or ways that people are treated in a certain way and inviting that conversation intentionally in the workplace organizations recognize, oh man, our employees aren't just coming in agnostic and in, in we work in a sanitized workplace, but we're bringing these conversations in and we want to have them and invite them. Arguably, we can look right now and say, whoa, is, that, is the iron still as hot as it used to be? But there was this movement and we saw even globally other organizations, companies, global companies outside of the U.S. having the same push towards response about what is happening in terms of social uh, justice outside of the workplace and what does it mean inside the workplace. If we go all the way back to the 60s and you think about the civil rights movement, many were actually trying to compel businesses to show up at a in a certain way, but there wasn't as much of a thorough way investments of uh, companies to explicitly have conversations and invite them in and to see their workers. The Great Resignation showed that maybe there was a war on talent and talent was winning in terms of companies having to do more than be performative and actually have to hold their leaders um, and expectation for their leaders to have a sense of awareness about current events and how things are impacting folks outside of uh, the same old norms of identity groups that got most of the attention consumers even that got most of the attention. But now there is expectation that employers now have some awareness about what's happening to employees who we might say the least of us and take it to heart and bring it into workplace and inform their workplace culture, their conversations, and even the same old ways they have done things, everything from talent acquisition to performance management. And the conversation of course still goes on and the story hasn't ended. And we see that in some spaces that there's still a punitive response in the workplace towards uh, employees being activists, but also there is more social accountability that there didn't used to be, which looks like even social media. Folks who may never be your customer or your consumer or your client being able to hold you accountable and that having an impact on your brand, your stock value, and all these other things. So organizations now, their feet are more to the fire 
um, whether or not they want that or not. And there's more teeth in the accountability, I think. I think that was very well put. I just want to bring in a couple of other points. This is really the first time, and this is the U.S. perspective, but I think it's also happening globally that we are now seeing in the workplace for the first time a majority-minority population. So if you look at people under 45, they are very diverse. This is the most diverse generation group of individuals in the workplace. And so that means that people are working together with others in ways that they have never experienced before. And so we need to know how to actually leverage and employ these individuals so that they can show up and be their best selves at work and work with one another. I came from a corporate environment and in that environment, they wanted to leverage diversity because these are their clients. These are going to be the workers. So how can we all get together and work together? There's this whole concept of diversity bringing into effect innovation, new ways of thinking. So a lot of the research that I've seen it really does play that out, that when you bring groups together, that they can indeed produce a different sort of business product and package that they would not have thought of if it was everybody is all the same. But it's not as simple as just bring these individuals together, stir and hope. There are no ruby slippers being clicked here. And so how do you actually manage that? I think those are some of the things that we're seeing around social justice. So this is really that business case for diversity, but also what Ico was saying was also true, which is you also see businesses that not only is saying diversity is good for our bottom line, but diversity really is our vision. So how can we actually do better for the social good? Very well said. The workplace is a microcosm of our society. And employees bring issues of human rights violations and social injustice to the workplace because those issues are there. They don't remain silent anymore. They bring those issues to the workplace. Unrest in society also creates unrest in the workplace, and they do not remain silent when they experience those unrest. Having said that, employers are realizing that they cannot stay quietly and dumbfounded at the issues that surround them in society and also in the workplace. So many employers are taking on the responsibility of also being advocates for change because it's part of their bottom line and they value not only their employees, they value their customers as well. The most successful organizations are the ones who have a social justice agenda so that they are seen as an employer of the people not one who's against the people. My university, several years ago, took on a social justice agenda in that it was vetted from the president all the way through the frontline workers. We had a set of goals, policies, structures in place, and people were held accountable. There was an accountability system every year where each dean, department head, unit leader had to account for progress, and money was tied to that. Those who were successful, those who showed significant progress, were rewarded financially um, to advance the agenda of the university. So that's what that's one example where employers, it didn't just happen by one employer or one or the president or the dean. It was 
all the way from the president, all the way down from the system level, so to speak, all the way down to the frontline worker. And there was, an, there was an accountability system to advance that agenda. So yes, some employers are taking on their responsibility as saying, we need, we need to do this for all concerned. But right now there's a backlash at the university when it comes to DEI initiatives and of course, and issues. What you just said there, Mary, makes me think about the relationship between social justice and politics. The example that you just gave there about the backlash against DEI feels a political backlash um, and that there are political forces, certainly within the United States, that have sort of stereotyped that as being something related to, as they would say, wokeness. Um, And it becomes a part of a pushback against a political agenda. When you see that, how do you view the relationship, therefore, between social justice and politics? As in, am I right in in saying that social justice really should be apolitical? It should be, but unfortunately, it, it's not. When we depend on the government for our funding, they dictate what we do and how we proceed with our structures our policies and our activities in higher education. I'm using higher education for an example. And even public education. Because right now, public education in Texas, um, they're forbidden from teaching race in schools, from teaching history about race in schools. So that becomes political. When higher education, we are told that issues of critical race theory, for example, um, we should not use that in our courses. And also, we are interviewing for a position about their social justice agenda, how they incorporate social justice in their research and in their teaching and in their service, something we did. We cannot do that anymore. We cannot ask our our faculty members who are on a search committee to take training, to be aware of their unconscious biases. We used to do that. Now we cannot do that anymore. So some of the programs we had, initiatives we had to minimize the discrimination to, to at least close the gap a bit that's being dismantled and we're not able to do that anymore. So it becomes political when it should not be. I think I'd want to add on to what Mary was just saying is that you would not have to talk about social justice if everyone did have human rights and it was equal and equitable. Social justice is actually working against the barriers that's been that have been put in place from everyone being able to have and exercise human rights. So it's not that it's become political, it's always been. So if we're even looking beyond the US and we think about things like freedom to have economic liberation or something or freedom to our own bodies. Yes, there's a conversation in the US that is very much a political one about pro-life, pro-choice. But that same conversation isn't happening in other countries because there's not an expectation that women get to have autonomy over their bodies at all. If you think about other countries as well, even the idea of who you can have an intimate relationship with and it be recognized by law in terms of same sex or what have you, that also is politicized because the law is in place to actually deter behaviors and access to certain rights that we may consider to be fundamental human rights. So I do want to be clear that it hasn't become political. It's actually politics and barriers to people being able to exercise their own human rights that includes law and legislation 
that we're seeing not only now in the U.S. as a topic of conversation, but globally. And so I do want to just be very clear: this is not a new coming. And if we're, we're not, if we're not just talking about North America or the U.S., it is much more expansive than this. And the reason why we have a lot of civil rights laws in the U.S. It was in order to enable folks to have access to things that we would consider to be human rights, like an economic freedom and the opportunity to have a job, regardless of our race or gender. So would you say that politics creates additional barriers to organizations, especially public organizations, who are trying to enact a social justice environment, so to speak, a more just environment for their employees? So that environment tend to would like most likely mirror society within which it exists. Um, those laws create additional barriers. What's your take on that? So I would actually say, yeah, it depends on the political environment because at the same time, laws have been used to enable access to human rights. So when we think about freedom from discrimination in terms of giving people a right to sue when they are being discriminated against or fair housing and access to housing. So there's fair housing rights now that enable people to have access to human rights. So a lot of it has to do with political environment in terms of, is it going to be enabling legislation or is it going to be denying or restrictive? But the idea of even women having access and, and funding for sports in, in colleges as well. And the same, we can see the same type of legislation in other countries as well. So it can be enabling or it can be restrictive. And the only thing that I would really add is human rights. It has always been a political uh, football. You know, who is going to, it's power. Power is politics. Who is going to control? And so human rights was a push that the wealthy, the powerful would not trample on the rights of the individual. So that's has been going on for eons. So how do we actually address it? What I'm seeing today in terms of the politics is the silencing. The wonderful thing about today is we have so much analytics. We can now call out the inequity. Uh, we can call out studies of uh, principal preparation and how regardless of the level of preparation, I think this was a Texas study um, that um, they had um, the number of women and women of color who were, who actually rose to become principal was non-existent. You know, the people who became a principal was a uh, white man, period, regardless of their qualifications. And so these are the levels of inequities that they don't want known. So when you start studying things at the intersectional level, you get into that level of granularity. So by essentially trying to close down the conversations, not do the research, not call it out at the different levels, then you can really start to see that there are power um, dimensions, politics, and it really is about trying to keep the existing system in place. I know ultimately we want to talk about the implications for human resource development, but I think but before we do, maybe the, the bridging question from here to there, having just talked about organizations, is, is probably to talk a bit about what all of this means for individuals in the workforce, their work and their careers. 
Mary, when you when you look at that, what what do you see as being the 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 core implications for for individuals of what we've just been talking about? This is a tricky one in that what I see is that while organizations some are trying to do the right thing, some organizations they are guided by economic imperatives. Some of other organizations they have the, the economic agenda, but they also incorporate concepts of democracy, social justice, human rights. They move them from the periphery into the center and, and complement that. We complement the economic imperatives with the human rights imperatives. Despite all of that work um, for individuals, I think it takes one to navigate the trenches of organizations, be an advocate for one's career, be an advocate for self. Um, but some of us don't have the voice to advocate for self. When we look at our low-level low workers, our lower-income workers, when we look at, at our service workers, they don't advocate for self. So therefore, what I, I, I suggest to those who have the voice to advocate for self, let's start with that group, is to find allies in the organization. Find individuals with similar interests from allies, because together, um, one can be, can be more powerful in a group can advocate for, for change as a member of a group rather than as an individual. And I would recommend that self-advocacy is important. Join a joint group, join ERG groups, employee resource groups that form around particular identities or interests. Be a member of those groups. And, and as a group, you can advocate for people who share similar interests or identities as you. That's one way we can self-advocate for us and for our own, for our own careers. But as we examine individuals in the workplace and propose solutions for career development, career advancement, we have coaches, we have those to support them, we tend to lose sight of the ground workers, our low-income workers, our low-literate workers, and what is the solution for them? They are dispensable. They are dispensable. And I don't have a solution for how we can protect um, this group of individuals, what is the plan? What is the solution for them to navigate the terrain of organizations? You know, I, I come from a strong labor family, you know, so labor um, was really pivotal, is coming back. Um, so I do think that if you want to have a voice, um, you have to speak out. And I think that's something that we're seeing more activism um, as ICO mentioned earlier on the part of employees, I see individuals so many times, they won't speak up for themselves and they won't speak up for a group. And it's really hard to advocate for someone who won't advocate for themselves. Individuals really want to try and have a level playing field. So my biggest advice or to individuals is try and make sure wherever possible, that you can find an organization that aligns with your values. You know, so if you're going into an organization and you are mistreated, you are not respected, you are not valued, your word is not heard, and find an organization that aligns with your values. And don't hire bad people in leadership roles. That's the other. If people have a very bottom line orientation, it's very problematic to be treated well. We don't always get the hiring right, but my goodness, when you notice behaviors and you start getting anecdotes or even witnessing bad actors, 
this idea of letting them continue on because they're producing in terms of cells or output or what have you, but you are seeing that their how is detrimental, is counter to the cultural, is harmful. That idea of leaning into accountability, many organizations do not take that next step in terms of sometimes people have to go and believe employees and workers when they're telling you about experiences instead of continuing to reward people or to shuffle them around organizations when they're bad actors. So that's uh, the one thing I would add on to what Cynthia said and appreciating that everyone does not have the privilege of voice to be able to express or state or set boundaries or self-advocate because that job is their access to their livelihood, to their insurance benefits, to supporting even others in their family. So recognizing that everyone does not have that privilege because oftentimes we might craft it in the way, especially workplaces, they may frame things in a way of, well, if that's happening, they need to speak up or they need to say something and putting the onus on folks to think that for something to be corrected or done well in an organization, you have to rely on whistleblowers versus recognizing that you have a commitment to provide a workplace that is not one that's harmful and toxic. And the other aspect, I think, more than compliance, more than laws, more than other things, is hiring people who actually have an idea of who they want to be as people in terms of their aspirational selves. Because the one thing that changes culture and behavior is social accountability. It's me looking over at Darren and saying, Darren, I want to talk about what you just mentioned and how that landed. That's going to change behavior more than someone from HR coming and saying, you can't do that or you need to go to this training. So the idea of social accountability and that's the glue of that is not only relationships, but people also being clear about who they want to be in this life and in this world and acting on it. It sounds so woo-woo sometimes, but at the end of the day, when people are on their deathbed, they're thinking about its relationships that matter and my impact on people. And I think we cannot stress and lean into that more in order to try and to try to get change in terms of more socially just workplaces. And that has to do with relationships. It has to do with holding people accountable. Um, in a social way. And that also has to do with folks doing their own work of understanding and elevating their own self-awareness and also their awareness of others. And to that, I would just add that I'm happy to note that those with voice, again, speaking from the university context, that's the way I have my experiences. Those with voice tend to advocate for those without voice. I have seen faculty, faculty groups, take on issues of our janitorial workers, the lawn care individuals, um, the kitchen helpers. When they feel that they're being discriminated against, they take on their cases, they take on their issues and advocate on their behalf. They form relationships with those individuals. So while they, they supervise them, they treat them poorly, but when they come into the space, in the departmental space, they find a healthy relationship with the faculty, with the staff workers, and therefore that tends to minimize the distress that they experience and discrimination they experience overall as an institution. 
So I just wanted to point that out that there's some, those who advocate for those who feel that they're not able to advocate for themselves. It's interesting listening to, um, to, to the answers that all three of you have given about the impact to organizations and the impact to individuals, because as I was listening, I was sort of keeping a note down and, 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 and almost every sentence included something that made me think, oh, HRD could do something about that. As in, it feels like HRD is in such a good place as typically as part of HR within organizations to to influence both influence the organization and and to be influencing and working with individuals you know when you think about employee development or career development you think about the ability to influence organizational change and to facilitate that so i i'm wondering when you think about implications for those who are working on employee development, career development, organizational change, whatever their job title is, um, those HRD professionals, uh, what do you see as the core implications of the of the discussion we've had on social justice? Well, one thing I want to dispel is the idea that um, equity and culture issues are owned by HR. So that's oftentimes where a lot of the weight ends up being left is that the, everyone's looking over at the chief HR officer or the HR team versus understanding that every employee is a steward of the culture. And oftentimes, uh, you know, we start at least temporarily seeing a shift in terms of how the chief HR officer or the VP of HR, what, what have you, has been acknowledged now as more of a strategic role. But Oftentimes, the HR leader does not get the same level or get the same seat at the table as a CFO and others. So there is this idea HR shouldn't be carrying the culture for the whole organization. Maybe they're tracking and bringing in enabling mechanisms. So I do want to kind of counter that that belief that's often set places where it's not the CFO, it's the CHRO who has to do this when actually it's the whole body. And the other part is that learning and development, performance management, talent acquisition, all of the employee relations issues, they often are housed between HR as well as the general counsel's office. And HR teams also are often led by white women or by women overall who often may not have done their own work. So I want to add these aspects out here because they create more of um, inequity, disparate expectations as well around what HR is really capable of doing. So I want to name those right there um, just as foundation aspects for us to consider. And I do want to recognize that even when an employee is first uh, introduced to an organization through the hiring process or talent acquisition process to even how a job description is written, all of these are opportunities to bring in equity, a, a culture of wanting to make sure we don't have toxic workplace or environment. So you have all these opportunities before the employee ever even comes into the workplace, the experience they have in the hiring process as well, to experience respect and being heard and being uh, visible. We also have learning and development, which allows people to get more elevated uh, skills and experiences around emotional intelligence even. So that's greater self-awareness about what some of my deficits might be or biases, as I think uh, Mary brought up earlier. In the performance management process, which is either rewarding people for behaviors or holding them also accountable for behaviors that are harmful. 
And oftentimes the performance management um, process does not do that and it can enable and reward bad actors and bad behaviors. So all of these aspects are usually housed under HR. So these are all opportunities to reinforce culture of equity within a workplace or opportunities to continue harmful and toxic workplace behaviors. So within the HR team, there are a lot of opportunities, but I never want to take it away from every individual employee has an opportunity at every moment to off-ramp and to do something different and to bring equity into a workplace to allow people to be visible. Mary gave a series of examples about even the faculty and how they engage with staff, actually step in and intervene for staff, acknowledge people and make them visible. So there's opportunities around for that. And yes, in HR, there are mechanisms and budgets and things to create it in a sustainable way as well. The one thing I wanna say about coaching, specifically executive coaching, is that it is not, the experience of having an executive coach uh, is not equal across the board. If you have learning and development folks who are actually delivering the learning and development and you have executive coaches also who have not done their work, they are gonna be instrumental and perpetuating harm and inequity. When I come into a room and I'm getting learning and development about different behaviors and the person in the front of the room does not look like me and nor can I even understand the experiences that I'm having, I automatically understand whether or not I have, I have permission to speak about real invalid experiences or if I don't. I understand in that moment whether or not this is going to be an equitable training or more of the same that is used to perpetuate a status quo that has been harmful for many and usually the people who are um, less recognized within an organization. I have an executive coach who an organization is investing in having for me, and I tell them an experience I'm having that might reflect inequity, and they come back to me and say, are you sure that's what happened? Because they cannot relate. That is also harmful. So I want to not only think about three things I've laid out here. One is the structure in an organization, and does it enable and legitimize the HR function at all, or does it diminish it? So that's one thing, whether or not what an HR team can or cannot do. Two, who is actually working within that body of HR and have they done their own work and are they accountable also for being equitable at all? And then number three, this other part about the vehicles used to actually teach folks and also supposedly to support folks are those processes and systems and even sometimes individuals, are they held to a standard where they are kept in compliance? And I say compliance, I mean, in such a way that they're accountable for when they're doing harm are being skilled in order to be equitable. Um, and just to follow up on that and maybe transition a little bit, but one of the things that I keep seeing, and the research is very clear, um, it is really hard to um, train a social justice mindset. Um, and so we really need to select people who have those mindsets. I am in the field of HRD, so um, as someone who focuses on learning and development. I know theoretically everybody can learn and change, but practically it doesn't happen. 
And so if you're going to move an organization forward, as Ico said, in terms of the culture, you need to hire people who have a mindset. And if you have people who don't, really come up with a strategy on how best to address that person or those individuals so that you can mitigate the differences. One of the big differences that I experienced going from a corporate environment in HR, where literally I had 24 hours to investigate and come up with a resolution, to going to a higher ed environment where there were no values in place in which you could actually look at someone's behavior and hold them accountable for it because the only uh, reference or coinage that was valuable is how many publications you had. Doesn't matter that you were a jerk to your colleagues or to your students or you were a problem. So those were the things, values, not having values that you can point to and say, you are not operating as a good steward. You're not operating in a social justice framework. Those are the tools that we need to see in businesses. I would echo, are the HRD practitioners prepared? Are they ready to work in organizations with diverse employees? Are, are they aware of the experiences of someone who does not look like them? I'm a Black woman bringing to you some of my issues I'm experiencing. Are you prepared to listen? Are you able to listen and open and hear what I have to say and suggest solutions, alternatives for me to address those issues that I'm, con that I'm confronted with. Are our programs preparing those individuals when they go to work organizations to perform the task with which they are tasked? So are, they, are we preparing them to work with diverse employees? So, so Cynthia, to kind of pick up on that just a little, because it, it makes me think about the content of HRD programs in colleges and, and, and how we're preparing HRD professionals for the sort of work that we've we've just been talking through. Well, when you take a look at education programs for HRD, do you get a sense that we should be doing more or doing something different around how we're preparing people for a career along the lines that the three of you have just been talking about for to kind of realize that potential that they have within organizations? Absolutely. And we see this in so many of the programs. So having that social justice, that DEIB, um, that equity lens that goes throughout their curriculum, I've seen this in programs, it needs to be front and centered. And so what does that mean in practice? So um, one of the things that we find is that despite all of the noise that's out there in terms of the politics, people really want to show up in the workplace and a lot of them and have the tools to be successful. And so they don't, but they don't know how to do it. They don't, there's been so much um, mystique and minimization. Um, they, uh, so they're really hungry. And so what I have found in working with students that um, if you give them tools, if you give them the opportunity to reflect, um, as Iko said earlier, in terms of, you know, what is their personal vision? What does an equitable environment look like for you? What is it that you want to achieve? And then when you're in your organization, what does that look like? What type of inclusive leadership 
model do you want to 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 be? Um, and then they can start looking at themselves and then their organizations more broadly. Um, we like to give students tools so that they can be self-reflective. They can see where they are in terms of their own journey of, and mindset around inclusivity. We can give them opportunities to practice interacting with one another. So calling out these behaviors and these values, as well as, um, so this is the interpersonal side, then working with others from a social perspective um, to look at practices in the workplace. Um, as someone who looks at performance improvement um, initiatives, you know, rooting out some of the things that Mary has talked about and Aiko has talked about in terms of, you know, what are the systems that are holding people back that aren't allowing them to flourish? So those are the things that you really want to look at and then say, okay, so how can we re-engineer the workplace, those practices, so that people really can thrive well? Um, those are the ways that we can help prepare people for their careers. But again, it starts with them. They have to know who they are. They have to come up with their own vision, see how their vision aligns with their organizations, how they can sort of push the envelope and then develop the skills to really work with others so that they can really have a inclusive environment that's going to allow people to have that social justice framework that they want in the office. I have an example of how our HRD programs, talking about university programs and in HRD, can do a better job in preparing HRD professionals, professionals to take on a workplace to address issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice in the workplace. For example, two of my colleagues and I did a study three, four years ago, HRD and social justice education in support of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. What we wanted to find out was the extent to which um, HRD programs are incorporating issues of DEI in their, in their curricula. And so we selected PEN Network, Program Excellence Network in HRD. There were 23 of them identified as Program Excellence Network, as part of the network. So what we did, we went through the curricula from their website, looking at the course offerings, the, the course descriptions, to see the extent to which they are. The courses have words like diversity, equity, inclusion, international, multicultural, multicultural education, social justice, marginalization and all of those terms in them. Out of the 23 programs we reviewed, six programs had a core course in dealing with diversity initiatives, whatever, however we want to frame that. And the others did not have any. And so we find that that was eye-opening for us. Here you are, the excellent programs within the, 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 within the field, and yet still diversity are not part, diversity, inclusion, social justice, that you don't have a course that addresses that. Of course, albeit it could be infused throughout the curricula, but we didn't see any evidence of, of that. So that's why I'm saying that we have some work to do in our curriculum in, in HRD so that we can begin to address some of the issues we've discussed that happens in organizations in HRD. Well, that actually sounds like a wonderful 
call to action for those who are listening to the episode. And so it probably is a good, a good way of wrapping up our conversation, seeing as we're, we've run out of time for today. But I wanted to say a massive thanks to all three of you, so to Aiko, Cynthia, and Mary, for such an interesting discussion. And I think for giving us all so much to think about and then hopefully to then act upon. So thank you so much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been a wonderful meeting and spending time with you all. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Aiko Bethea, Mary Alfred, and Cynthia Sims. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 33 episodes in the first three seasons, and we're releasing a further 11 here in the fourth. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 100 leading scholars from around the world. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors, the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. Find out more about them by visiting eahr.tamu.edu. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode when we're exploring the relationship between HRD, anxiety and burnout with the help of Dr. Amanda Hay of Nottingham Trent University Dr. Mira Alagaraja of Texas A&M University and Dr. Ellen Ernst Kosek of Purdue University. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.